Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Oregon was once home to about 50 drive-in movie theaters. Only a handful remain. That includes the 99W Drive-In Movie Theater, which opened in Newburgh in August of 1953. It is still going 70 years later. Brian Francis is the owner and operator of this family business. Michael Aronson is a co-director of the Oregon Theater Project and an associate professor of cinema studies at the University of Oregon. They join us now to talk about the lure and the history of drive-ins. It's great to have both of you on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us on. Brian, who started the 99W? It was the mood in the air with exhibitors to do something after the war and in this trade publication such as Box Office Magazine, the new hot thing was drive-in movie theaters. After the war, the, it was okay to go out and do things again, drive around your car and you know wear down your tires and that kind of stuff. And this technology that was kind of put on hold during the war years for the drive-in was unleashed then. And so it became a popular thing to build. A lot of them were built in the later 40s. 48 uh, was a great year. And then in 1953 is when the 99W drive-in opened. And, and, who, and who built it? J.T. Ted Francis, my, great, my grandfather. Huh. Did he have a background in movie theaters already? Well, he has a background and he has one in movie theaters too. He was born in 1900, so it was always easy to remember his age. And he lived until he was 98 and a half, uh, about the time the Star Wars Phantom Menace came in. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, you know, how I, you, that's how you chart I, years, is, uh, is yeah, movies. I, I, I can do that. That's one way to remember things. Um, um, and so he was born in Southern Oregon, down near Drain, Yonkala, and in Hayhurst County. And then while walking, one time he for something to do, uh, well, he dropped out of high school because of World War One, because his older brother went over to be a doughboy, and so he was taking care of the farm. But when World War One was over, his brother survived, and he was kind of like, "Well, the farm goes back to the oldest son." So he went off on his own, jumped on a uh, log plank in a log flume over to to, to drain, and walking behind the back of a business, he saw someone cranking a projectionist cr- hand cranking a machine, moving a picture on the wall. And the guy asked him if he wanted to try it for a few minutes. because his and, um, So he did. He went in there and tried that. His arm got tired, but he got hooked on the exhibition, running movies. Huh. So he was dropped out of high school, having to take care of a farm. And so he got a projector and a sheet and a car by shoe cobbling and stuff like that in Drain. And um, went around to high schools and lodge halls, uh, church basements, places where people had never seen um, a, a movie and that had, some had not even seen a car. But, I mean, rural places in Oregon, uh, Oddfeller halls and stuff like that. But he got tired of traveling in 1926. And in Newburgh, although he's called the movie man here, the guy who brought movies to Newburgh, there was already three silent movie theaters that had existed in Newburgh. And two of them were closed at the moment. I don't know why. Exactly, uh, but he uh, talked to the bank and he opened up the the, uh, the Star Theater and the Baker Theater in the twenties and ran silent movies for like until nineteen thirty, you know, nineteen thirty one or so when we went over to film on uh, sound on film. 
And then uh, 20-something years later, the the drive-in. Michael Aronson, when did drive-ins first appear in Oregon? Um, Right about the time he's talking. So, I mean, in general, they really took off uh, right after the post-war era. And um, particularly, actually, as as rationing for gas went away and people were getting out of it again, as he said, um, and uh, by the early by the early fifties, there was a Oregon Drive-In Theater Association. That's how strong it was, you know, a group of people, and uh, you see them popping up, uh, you know, uh, in a half dozen or so every year in in the, in the early fifties. Was was that the heyday? I mean, when would you say Michael was? the heyday of drive-ins. Yeah, I mean, uh, by the mid-1950s, there were 4,500 of them across the country. Um, And about, you know, to give you some sense, today there's less than, I think, about 300. So um, it really exploded in the 50s. And then um, as uh, suburbs grew and uh, really took off then, and then kind of a slow decline starting in the 1960s with, uh, you know, construction in Oregon, for instance, of the I-5, you know, changed um, the 99W tells you exactly where it is, right? And that used to be a much more major road than uh, once the I-5 went in. Uh, and that happened across the country, obviously, in the 60s. So, I mean, you really can see a connection between the growth of drive-ins and the growth of American car culture and suburban culture. Oh yeah, very much. And remember the before the drive-in and and before well, at the end of World War II, you know, we thought of movies as being located mostly in in downtown urban centers, right? The movie palaces of the 30s and 40s. And as people began to to leave this the city centers and move out into places like Newburgh in larger numbers, right? Um drive-ins because land was relatively inexpensive. Uh, because of car culture, really uh, took off in this time period. Hmm. Brian, what kind of stories did you hear about the early years of the family drive-in? Well, there was a drive-in before the 99W. In 1948, there was the Corral Drive-In, which was built in McMinnville, where currently present there is a Wilco store, which ironically, curiously, is next to a Walmart, which was always looking for driving land in the nineties or so the legend goes. Um, so 1948, there was that drive. And then 1953, there's the 99W. And I grew up in a house on driving property, like a lot of driving kids. And so I'd look out the window and I'd see, you look out there and see lady in the tramp eating spaghetti. Or I'd look out and I saw a woman getting painted gold and Goldfinger, And that kind of bothered me. Wait, literally from from <laughs> your like windows, that. you could see the movies that were showing. Yes, I had a deck and I had a speaker wired underground over to the house. We would like to turn the knob just like a on <laughs> drive-in. Your house in was, 19, it was, in the just, it was a drive-in. Yes. Huh. Beneath the Valley of the Dolls, Midnight Cowboy. Wow. Uh, things started getting really rough, you know, in the 70s. Godfather. In the nitty-gritty 70s, I was working in high school there. So I kind of just lived working there is what I did. There was, there was a lot of drama in 1960. Is it 62? The Columbus Day Storm knocked down the screen. Also knocked down the screen in McMinnville. That one did not rebuild. But we rebuilt the one in Newburgh, of course. I was very young then. Had to go live at my grandmother's house for six months. <laughs> so, Michael Aronson, do you 
what what do you think is a perfect drive-in movie? I and mean, we we've just heard from Brian, you know, all kinds of from Lady and the Tramp to Midnight Cowboy, which I think was was that the first technically X-rated movie in in theaters. Well, that was yeah, uh, X-rated used to be uh, a regular Hollywood studio rating, and it just meant uh, for grown-ups, not necessarily adult entertainment in the way we think of it. And it is it is still the only one to uh, win an Academy okay, Award. Maybe that was the superlative of it. Do, yeah, I mean, in, in your does... mind, what's what makes a great drive-in movie? Well, you know, as he's kind of pointing out between uh, the two ends of the spectrum, right? On one hand, drive-ins were designed for for families. If you see early refreshment stands have like ads for uh, free baby baby bottle warming, you know, which they, and they were promoted as family entertainment. But you know, as as things shifted, particularly as as he pointed out in the 1970s, right? Uh, and when I grew up going to drive-ins, they were mostly uh, about exploitation and uh, you know horror films all night long with free donuts in the morning if you survived. And uh, so I guess it depends what you like. But you know, having grown up as a teenager in the 70s, there was nothing better than going to see. You know, um, the hills have eyes at two o'clock in the morning with your with your buddies. So that's that's the period that I grew up in. But movie, the drive-ins have always had that kind of duality. On one hand, uh, family entertainment. On the other, you know, really aimed at uh, at teenagers. And that's true from the 1940s. The theaters were, um, you know, constantly trying to figure out how to both attract teens and also sell themselves as as wholesome family entertainment. Hmm. And Brian, that's something you saw. I mean, trying to attract both those teenagers who wanted to basically have a, an, an in-car date and families who were going to give their kid a bottle of milk. Depends on if you're running AIP pictures, Crown International pictures, or trying to get Disney pictures if you can get them, or any wholesome Hollywood entertainment movies, Steve McQueen, or you know, other westerns or other kind of movies that people would go to for the drive. That, I'm talking about the '70s there, because the, the '70s it kind of ended. The exploitation period ended in the '70s when the video VCR was created, and all that stuff went straight to tape. The stuff that Joe Bob Briggs talks about stuff. So um, that's a little unlike what the real drive-ins were doing. We kind of got uh, there was a. I'm kind of going off here, but there was kind of a problem in the early 80s when those independent places like AIP and stuff stopped or went straight to tape and they weren't really servicing the drive-ins anymore. Drive-ins couldn't get first-run films for a long time because they weren't, I don't know, because we were we were running, why, carload pricing, there weren't that many, I don't know, there's reasons why we couldn't get first-run movies. We'd have to get them really late. The prints were allocated to the state, you know, a certain number of prints, and by the time the drive-ins could get them, it was usually a little later down the line. There was no multiplexes yet, so you couldn't get a print from somewhere else. Uh, when the multiplexes came around in the later 80s, then there got to be logical to give prints to drive-ins because there's all these prints lying around that could be used, and we started picking up business again. What do you see as the biggest challenges that drive-ins face today? Drive-ins face today? Yeah. Well, it's kind of gone back to the 90s with in terms of attendance. It's like there's a lot of other drive-ins around, but what it really is, I guess, is streaming. People have been trained to watch movies a different way and stuff, even though, um, you know, there's an importance with having the social media just right and everything like that. Uh, we're kind of, since the pandemic, we're kind of like, we're kind of off on our own a little bit more, I think the drive-ins are. We call ourselves Ozoners, of course. 
But um, <laughs> you call yourselves what? Ozoners, and the my my grandfather was a hard topper until 1953, in which he became an ozoner because he opened a drive. It would be the <laughs> okay um, way, way to put that. I mean, Michael Aronson, I've heard that that VHS tapes and DVDs and then streaming now, obviously, are, are, can be pointed to as some of the reasons that the drive-ins have struggled. But I've read that another big one was just real estate, that land was often more valuable um, if it were developed. What role does, does development play in the demise of a lot of drive-ins? Yeah, and that that very much so, right? I mean, uh, the the biggest expense in many ways for a drive-in is is the land, and so when it was inexpensive, movie theater uh, hard toppers, as he calls them, uh, you know, actually complained because the costs were relatively low in terms of startup, and they felt like they were competing. But obviously, as the suburbs grow, um, you see as early as the 1970s in trade magazines. Uh, the, the shopping malls, right? Something we've talked about, right? Take take that same space up and they're willing to pay much more. Um, and so there's a real competition for land. You know, the 99W used to be outside of Newburgh state or, or town boundaries. And now, you know, it's, it's well within it. So very much so, I think that that's the case. So those that are... Um, you know, still, still, uh, still, there are the ones that have survived because they've been able to hold on to the land um, with these kind of family operations. Hmm. Yeah, Brian, um, is there a season, a high season for drive-in movies, and are we entering it? That used to be since Jaws. You know, when they had the, that was established as the tentpole time of the year to start putting out all the big hit movies. There is kind of one going on this year, though. With that sort of thing with the Mario film and Guardians. It started, it's different than it used to be. It kind of is when you can get it now with the way they release movies, um, which is right now. This is the high season when school gets out. Memorial Day to Labor Day weekend is what we usually call the high season in the driving industry. July, Fourth of July is like halfway through a season, used to be. Um, there's not a lot of big stuff coming out in August, so we don't know how long the high season will last this year, of which I do a, a you know, mix with new and old and repertory films at my theater. What are your hopes for this season? That uh, people will like The Flash and Indiana Jones, and I know they want Barbie, or did I blow up by not running Oppenheimer, and what's good for the drive-in and picking out the right repertory movies for it and that kind of stuff. I like to do double features, so I put a lot of thought into things like that. Brian Francis and Michael Aronson, thanks very much for joining us. My my pleasure. Thanks so much. uh, Brian Francis is the owner and operator of the 99W Drive-In Movie Theater in Newburgh. Michael Aronson is co-director of the Oregon Theater Project and an associate professor of cinema studies at the University of Oregon. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.
Think Out Loud and all of OPB's reporting in our communities are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help make it happen. Become a sustaining member now at opb.org slash pod.